me start with this, and this is, this, Al set me up here because it really, really goes along with a theme he just mentioned. Um, I was reminded this week as I was studying this passage of a very famous speech from World War II. And so it's World War II, it's the night before a really important battle, a battle that everyone knew was going to swing, um, you know, really where the war was going to go. And so you had this, this, this army uh, of young men in their late teens, early 20s, and they're all getting ready the next day to go into this important battle, and General Patton actually comes in to speak with them. Now, this speech, you just, you know, I've read through it. I can't read the whole thing, because if you've ever read a speech by General Patton, um, he's good at leading an army. He's even better at using profanity. It's like impressive, some of the stuff that he fits in there. Um, and so, if you can get past that, though, and you read the speech, it, it really is amazing. Because I want you to picture that, right? You're, you're about to have this, gr- this crew, this, this group of young men who are about to go into war, and they know what's coming to them. They know that they're going to lose friends. They know that they could lose brothers. They know that there's a good chance they could even lose their own life. And so what kind of speech do you give, <laughs> right? In a battle like that, what kind of speech do you give? You know, I've, I've coached football I've been a part of a lot of pregame talks, right? But those pale in comparison to this. This is is war, right? What do you you say? And here's what sticks out to me. When when General Patton gets up to give this speech, here's what he doesn't do. What you don't find at all is strategy. Now, now, there was strategy. Strategy is important. We'll we'll talk about strategy here in a bit. Strategy is, is key. You have to have a strategy. But in this speech, he chooses not to talk about strategy. Instead, what he focuses on is telling these men what it is that's true about them. The whole speech is about what's true about them. He reminds them that they have the best equipment. He reminds them that they have the best training. He reminds them they have the best leadership. And he reminds them that they have an entire country behind them. So when you head into a battle, when you head into a war, strategy is important. But what Patton understood is something more important is that you know who you are, (laughs) that you understand your identity, that you know what's true about you, and you know why you can be victorious. So if you remember, go back a couple weeks ago. No, that was a long time ago. But a couple weeks ago, Paul tells us about a war that we are in as Christians. He says everyone's fighting a war, but here's what's amazing. When you become a Christian... You don't stop fighting a war. You just go from one war to another war. And actually, when you become a Christian, you move into a war where all of God's enemies become your enemies. (laughs) So it actually ramps up a little bit. Because now, when you begin to follow Jesus, God's enemies become your enemies. So all of a sudden, it's the world, it's the flesh, it's the devil are all against you. Remember this? Paul tells us this two weeks ago, Romans chapter 7. And then he moves into Romans chapter 8. And I think what we, should see, what we see here is Paul is giving a Patton-esque speech. Okay? Actually, we should say Patton was giving a Paul-esque speech. But what he's doing in Romans chapter 8, what Daniel talked about with this song, is he's, he's reminding us what's true about us. Right? He's reminding us why we can be victorious. Now, the big difference is that battle was up in the air. Our battle's not, right? If you are in Christ, you are already victorious because of what he's accomplished for you. But in, as we go into the battle, I think what Paul is doing is he's reminding us what is true about us. So let's look at the passage. We're just going to work through verse by verse. So let's just start with the first two verses. 
verses 12 through 14. The Apostle Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, let's stop there. So what we see here, verse 12, Paul starts with, so then. So he's responding to something before it. Okay, so what's he responding to? Well, first of all, let me, let me point out two things. First of all, what he said in Romans chapter 8, specifically verse 1, he's told us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we are not slaves to sin. We are not slaves to fear, right? Because he has accomplished that for us. So there is no condemnation for those in Jesus. And he doesn't stop there. He then goes on to say that Jesus was raised from the dead. He defeated death. And listen to this. The same spirit that raised him from the dead lives in you. How amazing is that? So if you are in Christ, right, that's actually the most popular phrase used in Scripture to describe a Christian. Christian's only used a couple times. In Christ is used like 200. If you are in Christ, I love that image, abiding in Him, if you are in Christ, then the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead now lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And so what does this mean? Verse 12, Paul says this, Because of this, we are no longer debtors to our sinful flesh. We don't have to listen to our sinful flesh anymore because Jesus has accomplished this for us. Now, we've talked about sinful flesh. That's come up over and over and over and over again. Let me give you a new definition. It fits with everything we've said. But just as you're thinking about this, I think this is a helpful way to think about what our flesh is. This is from an author named John Tyson. He says this, Our flesh is our coping strategies to try to get through life without God. Our coping strategies to try to get through life without God. So what Paul's saying here is, he's going to talk about, you're a child of God. So you don't need this anymore, right? You you can dump them, okay? All these, this this sinful flesh, those coping strategies to get through life without God, you don't owe them anything. Right? You are a child of God. But as uh, the, the unfortunate news, if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, the unfortunate news is breaking up is hard to do, isn't it? Paul says we don't owe our flesh. Paul says we can dump it. But breaking up is hard to do. A good image of this, um, anyone read, okay, I'm a, I'm a C.S. Lewis guy, but anyone read The Great Divorce? Okay, C.S. Lewis, okay, we got, we got one, nice. Go read that today, okay? It's so good. It's, you know, everyone C.S. Lewis reads Narnia or Mere Christianity or Screwtape Letters, which are all amazing. This one is, is highly underrated, The Great Divorce. I won't go, the plot's, the plot's crazy, it's an allegory, I won't go into all this, but it's a, it's a fantasy book, okay? It's a fantasy book, it's a work of fiction, it's a novel, where he's using these allegories to make important spiritual points. And there's one part of the book that has, has just really stuck with me since I read it. And in this book, uh, we're introduced to, the, to this guy, okay? And you meet him, and he's just a normal guy. You meet him, and, and, and he's got everything together, right? Good job, good life, 
Like, he just, just, he's one of the guys you walk into your church and he's new and you're like, praise God. Like, this is awesome. Like, he's going to be such a help to our ministry. This guy, this guy is, has everything together. But there's this one distinct thing about him that Lewis points out. And it's that he has this red lizard that is riding on his shoulder. Okay? So it's a normal guy with a red lizard riding on his shoulder. And what Lewis tells us in the story is that this red, red lizard actually represents the secret battle with lust that he has. It's this battle that he's fought as long as he can remember. And he has everything down, right? He looks like this perfect Christian man, but really he has this just this lizard that's hanging out on his shoulder. And this crazy thing happens. The spirit actually comes to him. And the spirit comes to him and sees this lizard, and he looks at him and he says, may I kill it? And the guy just responds, yeah, I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> and the spirit says, no, 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 no. May I kill it? And he actually has his hands around the throat of this lizard. And the guy says, I don't want to bother you, <laughs> right? And as you're reading it, it just ramps up and ramps up and ramps up and it goes back and forth. And the spirit goes, no, can I kill it? And the guy says, that's going to hurt. I don't, I don't want that, right? And it just keeps going and going and going. The man makes every excuse that he can, maybe another day. And then he gets defensive. And then it, it doesn't stop there. Actually, the lizard gets defensive. <laughs> and the lizard begins to talk. And the lizard says to the man, don't let him do this. You can't live without me. How can you, like, look, I know, he says, I know I've acted out sometimes. I know I've been bad. I'll be better. You can't live without me. What are you without me? You get it? <laughs> Do you get Lewis's point? And Paul, I think he's, I think he's nailing it, because what Paul is speaking to here is that you don't owe that lizard anything. Dump it, right? You don't owe that lizard anything. Dump it. And here's, here's the problem. It looks like nothing. This guy looks like he has it all together, but it's killing him. It, it, it's killing him. I, actually, in the, in the context of the story, it's what's keeping him from actually following Jesus. It's killing him. So here's, here's what you need to know. We all have a lizard on our shoulder, right? <laughs> we all have a lizard on our shoulder. Maybe it's not lust, but that lizard is there. Maybe it's pride, maybe it's bitterness, maybe I, don't, I can't name your lizard, okay? But that lizard is on every single one of our shoulders because even if you are in Jesus, even if you are a Christian, even if you are, have trusted in him, sin is very much alive in you. And here's the problem. Way too many Christians just play around with that lizard. They say, he's trained, <laughs> okay? He won't do anything. He won't act out. Just, just ignore him, right? Play around with it. They, 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 don't, they don't put it to death. But if you look, look at, look at verse 13. What does Paul tell us to do? Put it to death, right? Don't play around with it. Put it to death. Why? Well, a Puritan named John Owen said it best. He said, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It may seem like a harmless red lizard, just a little pet you can carry around with you all day, but that lust is killing you. That bitterness is killing you. That greed is killing you. That pride is killing you. And killing it will not be easy. 
Okay? That's why the man makes all these excuses. It will not be easy. It will hurt. But notice what's on the other side. Look at verse 13. What's on the other side? Life. Okay? Life. You want life to the full? That's what Jesus says. You want life to the full? You got to kill this thing, right? If you want life to the full, you got to kill this thing. I, I love this. So John Wesley, a uh, famous 18th century preacher, he once had a skeptic come up to him and just ask basically, what are you doing, right? Like, I've seen you go around preaching. I've seen you, you know, you're helping people. Like, what's going on here? And John, I think about this all the time. Here's, this is Wesley's answer, and I, I'm... I'm kind of uh, translating here. He was a British guy in the 1700s, so I'm taking out some wither, thither, and thous and all that. But, but listen to this, because it's just, it's just powerful. Here's his response in the more modern English, okay? Here's what Wesley said. You asked what I would do with them. I would make them virtuous and happy, easy in themselves and useful to others. Where would I lead them? To heaven, to God the judge, the lover of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. What religion do I preach? The religion of love, the law of kindness brought to light by the gospel. What is it good for? To make all who receive it enjoy God and themselves, to make them like God, lovers of all, content in their lives, and crying out at their death in calm assurance, O grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives me the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good life, right? That, that, that's it, okay? What's on the other side? It's life. It's this. To be virtuous, happy, useful to others, loving others, enjoying life, content, unafraid of death. Don't you want that? Right? Like, like that's what's on the other side. That's what Paul says here. It's, it's life. Eternal life, and actually eternal life starts now, okay? When you have the Holy Spirit come live inside of you, it starts now. You can have this, obviously, in, in lesser degrees than you will for all of eternity, but you can have this. And so, look, I mean, look around, okay? If, you, if, you're, if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, you got dragged here, and you're like, why do I want this? Okay, like, well, what's, what's in this for me? Why do I, what, Why? Why do I want to kill the lizard, right? Like, why do I want this? It's right here. Because what, what our culture tells you, what, what Netflix tells you and the music we listen to tells you, what it all tells you is you find happiness and life through hedonistic pleasure. You find freedom through taking down all the barriers and doing whatever your flesh tells you to do, right? That, that's, that's basically what our world is preaching to us constantly, right? But look around. Does anyone look like what Wesley describes? <laughs> when you look around our city, when you look around our country, when you look around our world, does anyone look like that? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, in general, what do people look like? They're mad at each other. They're miserable. They're anxious. They're discontent. They're afraid to die. <laughs> right? But so much more than that is offered. In Christ, so much more than that is offered. And so let's get, let's get practical, okay? Let's get practical. How do, we, how do we fight for life? How do, we, how do we fight for this? Let's say you want this. How do we fight for this? And I could, I could say many things here. There are thousands and thousands of pages written on mortification of sin. Al has a doctorate in this. I could just have him come up and tell you, right? Like, there's plenty of things I could do. But let me just give you two broad categories that are, that are unbelievably important. 
Okay, two broad categories, unbelievably important. Number one, don't fight alone. Okay, don't fight alone. That, that, is, that is so key. Do not fight alone. Bring others in on your struggle. Make a practice of confessing your sins to others. Okay, and here's what I mean by that. I, I've, I've said that before and got questions. So do you mean everyone? No, right? Like, no, don't, not confessing your sins to everyone. You don't have to walk through, you know, the hallways of our church and just tell people your sins. But here's what I think you, you are called to, is do you have a, we talked about this a few weeks ago, do you have a trusted group of Christian brothers or sisters who you can fully open up to? Who, who, who know really what's going on in your life? They know about the lizard on your shoulder. And they're there to help you fight it. Do you have that? Because if you don't, you might be fighting a losing battle, right? Because we're, we're not in this alone, okay? God calls us to fight in community. Listen to this. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. See, the lizard shrinks up when it gets in the light. Sin loses its power when it gets into light. So how are you bringing your sins to light? Okay, don't fight alone. And let me acknowledge, let me acknowledge what you're thinking. Okay, let me read your mind. That's awkward, (laughs) Right? Like, it is. Like, that's awkward. Like, it's just, sometimes it's just easier to grit our teeth and bear it because we don't want to bring other people into it. That, that's, that's weird. It, it's hard. It's easier just to keep it in the dark. But let me, let me say this, okay? Let me say this. If you are, I, I get it, and it is, but if you are unwilling to share your mess with others, you are not believing the gospel, okay? You are not believing the gospel because you know what the gospel tells you? You're a mess, okay? You're a mess. So when a Christian comes to you and confesses their sin, that should not be a shock to you, right? Right? Because you're a mess too. We're all a mess because we're not trusting in our own selves. We're not trusting in, in our good works to save us. We're trusting in the one who lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve, right? As Christians, we follow G.K. G. K. Chesterton, who one time a newspaper asked him, you know, Chesterton, what's wrong with the world? And his response was simple. He says, I am. It's me, okay? We all know that. And so we are free to share our mess because we're all messy, right? So don't fight alone. It's awkward, but let other people into that. Bring it out into the light. But not only that, notice, notice what Paul says here. This is, I think, even more important. Paul says to fight by the Spirit, right? Fight by the Spirit. You don't have to fight alone. You can have other people, but also fight by the Spirit. One author put it this way. He said, fighting sin without the Spirit is like open hand slapping a bear. It isn't going to go well for you, okay? So how do we fight with the Spirit? This is going to sound counterintuitive, but in order to fight, we have to surrender, In order to fight, if you are going to fight by the Spirit, in order to fight, we have to surrender. That's another thing I love about that that story in the great divorce, is you have the Spirit with his hands around the throat of this lizard. 
But the question he keeps asking is, can I kill it? Can I kill it? Can I kill it? And I think Lewis is nailing something here. That the Holy Spirit, if we are, if we are gripping on to that lust or that greed or that bitterness or whatever it is, if we are gripping on to that thing, he's not going to pry it out of our hands, typically. He could do that, but he's not typically going to do that. What he's going to wait for is surrender. Can I kill it? Can I kill it? He's waiting until we say, my life is surrendered to you. I give this thing over to you. You are much more beautiful than this thing I've been holding on to. You see that? He's waiting for surrender. I don't know if you all have seen the, the news the last couple of weeks. You've been keeping up with this. But have you heard about what's happening at Asbury University, just up in Kentucky? right? So there's this, this revival that's broken out, I think, for two weeks straight now. I just, I just, I've been like constantly just looking at that because, you know, I was, I've been, that's been an interest of mine, just studying revival over the past couple months. And now it's like, okay, there's something to, you know, this is a, an awesome example of this. And so in this, I've just been kind of going, going down, studying about this, studying about the history of revivals. And I, I came across this article that was, that was fascinating. And uh, it's by one of my seminary professors, a guy named Kim Booker. And in this article, he was talking about what are the things that actually hinder revival from coming into our lives and our church and our city? What are the things that actually hinder that? And he gave like 10 things, and they were all really convicting. But there were two things that stuck out to me most of all. First of all, he said, our, often our first problem is that we don't pray for revival because we don't expect it. That was... That hurt, right? We don't pray for revival because we don't expect it. We hear things like this. This is true. In the first great awakening, in two years, 15% of the United States converted to Christianity. 15% in two years. And we hear that, and we may not say it out loud, but what we think is, that would never happen in our day. We're too far gone, or whatever we think. So we don't pray for it because we actually don't expect it. Okay, so that, first of all, that's convicting. Is that something you expect that God could actually do? Are you praying for it because you think he could actually do it? But here's the second one, and this, this really applies to what we're talking about today. Listen to this. Here, here's, here's another reason he said we don't ask for revival, while we're actually afraid of revival. He said this, true revival begins in agony. It doesn't begin with laughter. It begins with tears. Revival is like judgment day. The Spirit of God shines His searchlight on our hearts, and anything out of keeping with God's Word and God's will is exposed, and we're forced to deal with it. I think that's a big reason why people fear revival. It's because they know those hidden sins are going to come to light. God's going to shine His searchlight on it, and it's going to mean change. You see his point? We actually fear revival because revival actually means dealing with our sin. It means dealing with the lizard on our shoulder. And we don't want that, right? We don't want that. We're comfortable with it hanging up there in Kentucky. We don't want it to come into our own lives, right? Revival, we, we see it as this, you know, thousands of people gathering together in a chapel, but it, it starts in your heart, right? Like it starts in, in revival in your life and turning from your sin, repenting, and surrendering to Jesus. 
And a lot of people don't want that. They don't want to have to deal with that. So we must surrender, right? We must surrender. Let's move on. Here's a second application. This really is it's just the rest of the passage. But a second application for our, our fight with sin. It's this. Remember your identity. Remember your identity. You are fighting as a child of God. When you fight, you are fighting as a child of God. Look at verse 15. Paul says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So at home, I I talk about him every sermon, but at home we have a a three-year-old Knox and a a 10-month-old Haddon. And I don't want to tell on him, I don't want to roast him in front of everyone, but Haddon is not a good sleeper, okay? Just has not, we were so spoiled with Knox. He was great, he slept just really quickly and has never had a problem with it since. Haddon is not a good sleeper. And here's the, here's the thing. So we, you know, it's, if that sounds miserable, all you parents have been there, it is miserable, right? It's horrible. It's, it's awful when you're going to bed and me and Allie say, good night, I'll see you in a couple hours, right? Like that's a horrible feeling when you're there. But here's the interesting thing. And, and this, and I don't know if Allie's in here, but she'll probably hit me when she hears me say this. When Haddon cries at 3 a.m., that is actually a very beautiful thing. Doesn't feel like it in the moment. But it is a very beautiful thing, and here's why. And I, I've been, you, you will not be able to convince me this at 3 a.m. If I said it to Allie, she would hit me. But here's the thing. It's a, here's why it's a beautiful thing. I, I was doing some research into this this week, and it's just, just heartbreaking. Did you know that there are actually thousands of babies around the world who do not cry? You know this? There are thousands of babies around the world that do not cry. If you go into an orphanage... If you go into an orphanage where the babies have not been adequately taken care of, they will not be crying. Okay, here's, here's what one social worker, here's how she described it. She said, without a doubt, the most gut-wrenching sound I've ever heard is that of silence in a ward full of children in an orphanage. In orphanages throughout Europe, Africa, Asia, and South America, babies have learned not to cry because they realize no one will comfort them. They're ignored forgotten, and silent. That's heartbreaking. It, I mean, that's, that's awful. And that's why I say it's actually a beautiful thing when Haddon cries at 3 a.m. Why, why is Haddon crying at 3 a.m.? Because he knows he has parents who love him. He knows he has parents who hear him. He knows that when he cries, we can't ignore him, okay? Even when we try, you know, sleep training and all that. We can't ignore him. We have to do something about it because we love him. I, I say that not just to be sad. <laughs> I say that because that's our story as Christians. That's our story. There was a time in your life where you didn't have a father, right? When you cried out, even, you know, whatever, you didn't really think that anyone was going to hear you. When you, at, you were at your lowest and you cried out, you had no certainty that that prayer was going anywhere. But what is Paul saying here? We have been adopted as sons and sons and daughters. And so now what do we do? We cry out, Abba, Father. We know that we are not alone. That's actually the end of the story. If you go in and you adopt one of those babies, 
from that orphanage and you bring them home, you know what happens? They learn to cry again, <laughs> okay? They, the crying comes back because they learn that there's someone who's there who loves them. So this is your story. In the fight, you're not fighting alone. You have other people. You have the church around you. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you cry out as a son or daughter, Abba, Father, right? That is good news, isn't it? That is good news. You have a new identity. And that identity isn't the identity of, of trying to be more powerful or getting higher positions or getting more possessions. Your identity is being a child of God. So we fight. We fight sin, but we do it as children. We do it as children because we have an identity now that is invincible. No one can take it away from us. And it gets better. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So look at what's true of you if you were in Jesus. First of all, you are a child of God and the spirit bears witness that you are a child of God. One of the many roles, so I mean, I think if you're asking, what does the Holy Spirit do? What's he do? What's his role? There's many things we could say, but one very important role that he has in your life, if you are a Christian, is that he takes the head knowledge we have, that we have a heavenly father, and he makes that truth real to us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Here's how Dane Ortland describes it. He says, it's one thing as a child to be told your father loves you. You believe him. You take, him, you take him at his word. But it is another thing, unutterably more real, to be swept up in his embrace to feel the warmth, to hear his beating heart within his chest, to instantly know that the protective grip of his arms are there. It's one thing to hear he loves you. It's another thing to feel his love. This is the glorious work of the Spirit. So there's an application there. So I keep saying, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, I know. I've heard that my whole life. Okay, right? And I believe it, but I don't feel it. There's your application. Pray to the Spirit, right? Like, like Spirit, work, help me to understand this fully. Help me to truly believe this, right? Help me to live as a person whom this is true of. Help me that when I walk into my job, when I walk into my school, I live as a child of God. Help me, right? That, that's, there's your application. Help me. And when we're talking about fighting sin, that's going to help you so much because you're fighting from that identity. You, don't, you, can, you can dump that lizard because you're fighting as a child of God. It actually gets even better. He says, you're a child of God, but not only that, you're an heir. See that? An heir and a co-heir with Christ. You know what that means? Think, this, is, this is crazy to wrap your head around. Think about what this means. Not only are you a child, but you are a co-heir with Christ. Here's what that means. You get everything that Christ deserves. For all of eternity, you get everything that he has earned. It's yours. Right? That's actually, this is interesting. You can read this and see how Paul says 
you are sons of God. Over and over again, he says sons of God, and we're tempted to kind of be like, well, Paul was, you know, first century. Let's make sure to add daughters in there. It's actually, he's making an important point. Who got the inheritance in the family? The son, right? So we all become sons of God. We all get the inheritance. And not only that, we get what Jesus deserves. We get what our older brother earned for us. One time in, in college, I met a guy for breakfast, just met him through, through ministry, didn't really know him. He asked to get breakfast just to get to know each other. And this was pretty awkward. Uh, over the course of breakfast, I figured out, learned, he was trying to kind of hide it, but I put it together, that he was the son of someone who's extremely famous, you all would know who his dad is, and extremely wealthy, okay? I Googled it this week just to check. You know, net worth around 300, 400 million, okay? So wealthy, right? He didn't even buy the coffee, which is just whatever. But anyway, um, it's fine, it's fine. But I remember here in this breakfast, I remember when I figured this out, it brought on a little extra pressure to make this friendship work, okay? Like, this is my sinful, selfish flesh here, but I'm thinking, you know, if I could become a friend of this guy, I could get some of those breadcrumbs that fall off the table, right? Like, Super Bowl tickets, you know, rides on the private jet. Like, I'm starting to put together, like, if I could just get in with this guy, all the stuff that's coming to me, right? Now, here's the problem. We never talked again after that. So I guess, it, I guess it didn't go well, but, you know, that's fine. Whatever. Maybe I'll have that opportunity again someday. I don't know. But here's why I say that. Imagine if not only I became a friend, but I became actually a brother, okay? Like I became a brother. I, I was adopted into the family. And then you could actually take it a little bit more and say, what if I was a co-heir, what if I actually got everything that's coming to this guy, okay? Because it's a lot. What if I just, without even earning it, was able to get everything that's coming to him, okay? That would be pretty cool, right? That'd be cool. But actually, as Christians, we have something so much better, right? We get everything Jesus gets, okay? For all of eternity, we get everything that he has earned through his obedience, even though we are sinners who fall over and over again. If you are in him, you are in him, right? You get what he has earned. You get what he has earned. Let me close with this. Let me close with this and just ask one more question, okay? We've learned a lot of things that are true of us, right? A lot of amazing things that are true of us, that we're children of God. There's no condemnation. The Spirit lives in us, and he helps us. You can go on and on and on and on and on. Let me ask one more question as we close. How did these things become true of us? How did these things become true of us? Look back at verse 15. Paul says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Let me point something out to you. So, Abba, Father, Okay, you probably heard this. This is a famous, you know, preaching thing to, to point out. But Abba, right, is, is actually an Aramaic word. Okay, Bible trivia question. Who spoke, who spoke Aramaic? Jesus. It's a Sunday school answer. I was setting you up. Okay, so Jesus spoke, spoke Aramaic. And so Jesus 
Actually, what, what, what commentators will point out here is that Paul could have just said father, right? He could have just used the Greek word for father, but he's probably using the Aramaic word Abba for a reason because he wants our minds to actually go back to a time when Jesus used this word Abba, okay? So go there, go there. You remember this scene? It's the night before Jesus' death, and he goes to pray alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember this? And he's kneeling down in this garden. And he is, is kneeling down and, and, and he's, he's praying to God, but it's not just a normal prayer. He's so distressed that actually blood, is, he's, he's sweating blood at this point. He, he's, he's, he's literally sweating blood because he's, he's so distressed about what's to come to him. Now, here's what's interesting about this scene. You know, if you, if you go read church history, one of the, the most inspiring things to me is to read stories of martyrs, people who gave up their life for Jesus. And there seems to be this common theme that when people are about to give their life up for Jesus, at least the stories that were told, is that there's this calm that comes over them, right? They usually say something crazy that gets recorded and it's awesome. You know, like there's this, there's this defiance as they die, just this, this calm. But here's what's fascinating. Jesus is about to die and he's not calm at all. He's so distressed, he's sweating blood. He's freaking, he's freaking out, right? So what's he about to walk into? What this shows us is it can't just be a normal death. Something's going to happen that isn't normal. There's something that is causing this distress in him. And here's what he knows. Jesus knows that on the cross, he is going to go through so much worse than any physical death. On the cross, he is going to take our sin on himself. And think about this. Jesus has lived for all of eternity in perfect intimacy with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Okay, Perfect intimacy for all of eternity. But on the cross, the Father's wrath is going to be on him because of our sin. Because of our sin. So, th- I mean, think about this. Think about this. Have you ever lost a relationship that you desperately wanted? Right? The more you want a relationship, the closer that person is to you, the more it hurts when that relationship ends. If someone you barely know at, at work or at school walks up to you and says, I don't want to be your friend, you'll be like, Okay, <laughs> right? Like maybe that stings a little bit, but you're like, okay. If a best friend says it, that really hurts, right? That, 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 that really hurts. If it's a spouse or if it's a parent, that can be unbearable. So now we have Jesus, okay? Jesus and his relationship with the Father compared to even the greatest marriage, is like a raindrop compared to the Atlantic Ocean. And he is going to go, and he's going to take our sin on himself, and he's going to experience the wrath of God, where he'll cry out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's going to feel that on the cross. His Abba, his Father, right? He's going to experience that. And so that's what he says, right? He goes to his father in the garden. He knows this is coming. And listen to what he says. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, 
but what you will. On his knees in the garden, he's saying, Dad, if there's any other way to save them, let's do it. But not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. And listen to this. Because Jesus was forsaken on the cross. Because he had to yell out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you are in him, you will never be alone again. Right? You can be a child of God because of what he has done for us. Haddon cries out at 3 a.m. because he knows that his mommy will hear him. I could say daddy, but I know he's looking for mommy, right? He knows mommy's going to hear him. We can cry out knowing that God is going to hear us because of what Jesus has done for us. We have that kind of access to him. And let me just, let me just say this before we, we have the band come back up. If you don't know him, okay, if you don't know him, if you aren't in Christ, that can change today. That can change today. Surrender. That's what it is. Surrender. Surrender to him. Surrender. Say, I'm not the king of my life anymore. I want you to be. Surrender. Let me pray. And then we're going to close with the song that we just sang, um, No Longer Slaves. And so I... If that was you, I, I talked about earlier, I said, um, you know, the Holy Spirit, one of the things he does is he reminds us that we are children of God. And so maybe this is a time for you as we sing this. Sing it, but also be praying to God, let me know this and live this, that I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you that we can be your children. We, you know, like, like the story of Hosea in the Old Testament, we have, have run away. We have tried to live our own way. We've held on to those lizards on our shoulder, not letting them go, unwilling to surrender. But you sent your son to come and get us back, and I, I thank you for that, Lord. Let it, that's something, and I pray, just, just as we saw in this passage, I pray that the Holy Spirit will just remind us of what these truths mean. I said a lot of things today that a lot of us have heard preached and taught thousands and thousands of times. I pray that you'll just help us to fully, truly believe those things. Believe where it actually changes the way we live. Just as we sing this out, help remind us what it means that we are children of God and help us live out of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We will please stand.